Welcome to Shot Reversal, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me, as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Uh, yeah, man. I'm doing well. Yeah. It feels like ages since we last talked, but it was, it was genuinely a week, wasn't it? Yeah. I don't know why that is. I mean, a lot happened in the news <laughs> this week. Yeah. It's, okay. it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, been a, it's been a very draining week in the real world, and yeah. also in, in the film world as well. I mean... No, no one was firing bombs uh, except uh, between Netflix and Cannes lobbing insults to each other. Yes, yeah. but we'll uh, we'll we'll get back we'll get to that uh, in a minute. But first, our first, uh, we'll just quickly check check in with one of the dominant news stories of the year so far, which has been the success of Black Panther, which last week overtook Titanic to become the third highest grossing movie in US history of all time, not adjusting for inflation, but, you know, inflation is an inexact science. And when you look at things like Box Office Mojo, they don't include literally thousands of movies that have been mm. released over the course of time. So, like, the only thing you can really go on is the pure dollars. So it's currently number three behind Avatar and Star Wars The Force Awakens. And worldwide, it's entered the top ten with one3 Billion. Now it's still got a little bit of juice left. You know, it, there's a there's chance that it could uh, get over the hump and get over seven hundred million dollars. But at the same time, like Infinity War is coming out in two weeks or a week and a half. So I mean, it's probably probably going to get steamrolled by effectively its own sequel. Mm. Well, or like a sudden upsurge in Greatest Showman um, sing-alongs because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. still somehow going i've noticed yeah yeah that's still that's still going at its own sweet pace and uh mm, slow kind of zimmer frame in. mobility scooter mm-hmm. type pace yeah i thought you were going to suggest that there were going to be sing-alongs of black panther and everyone just really kind of going wild for all the kendrick tracks which i honestly would look forward to doing i think that'd be really fun yeah, I think people like you and I, Ed, um, <laughs> without putting too fine a point on it, might want to wait for the DVD for that one. Um, because, mm. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be, like, culturally appropriating anything. Um, mm. And, yeah, it's yeah best to just, you know, be supportive <laughs> without um, compromising anything. That is... We did say at the time when, when we realised how good Black Panther was doing that, mm. you know, it shatters the myths of, like, you know, films with black cast don't do well internationally, you know. Not only it just completely obliterated any of those semblances of things that now has to kind of just, like, reset the board for for mm. the way people think about movies and distribution worldwide. Yeah, you you would hope that Hollywood will learn its lesson from that, but... If it does, as is often the case, it'll learn its lesson in like five years' time when there's been another five movies with predominantly black casts that have done really, really well. Mm. Like, it, it, it's never like the first seismic success. That's the one that makes them think, hmm, we'll keep an eye on this. Yeah, we'll monitor this one. Yeah. And you mentioned cultural appropriation, which I think brings us on to uh, what's certainly a story that's been keeping my attention a lot this week, which is the controversy surrounding the character of Apu on The Simpsons, uh, which I think most people are probably familiar with the character of Apu Nhasapima Petalon, who is this character that's been in The Simpsons since probably about 1990 when the character was introduced. And during that entire time, 
this character, who is an Indian store clerk, has been voiced by Hank Azaria, who is uh, decidedly not Indian. I think mm-hmm. it has to be. It should be pointed out. And over the last couple of years, the stand-up uh, Hari Kondabolu, who is a uh, comedian of Indian descent, he's the the children of first generation uh, immigrants to the U.S., has been on something of a crusade to get the Simpsons to acknowledge that there is something wrong with the fact that this character, who is for many people like the prominent image of Indians and Indian culture in America is in some way wrong or is, is, you know, at the very least problematic, you know, at the, the worst and probably more honest, uh, a racist caricature. Mm-hmm. And he has talked about this on the show, totally biased with W. Kamau Bell, which was kind of like the first case where he, you know, he did a whole segment on it. Then he has talked about it since then. He made this documentary called the problem with a poo, which came out last year on true TV and was kind of like the, the part that the, the thing that really kind of sparked this controversy to a, the next level, to such an extent that the Simpsons responded to it in a way in a current episode, which aired last week called no good read goes unpunished in which Marge buys a book for Lisa, which she had been a fan of when she was a child. And when she reads it to Lisa, she realizes that this book is full of unexamined racist attitudes, you know, cause it's written by a white English author in the thirties and forties, whatever. So there's lots of very condescending language towards people of other races and things like that. And, for most of its running time, the episode seems to be actually dedicated to really exploring this question of like how attitudes towards art change over time. Uh, but instead of reaching a conclusion about it that is maybe cathartic or even something that leaves things ambiguous, but at least raises the possibility that they that at least raises the notion that the writers have heard these critiques and they're taking it to heart. It basically ends with Lisa saying words to the effect of, uh, you know, sometimes these things which are created a long time ago, which are acclaimed and considered inoffensive, suddenly become politically incorrect. And then she looks over and there's a picture of a poo next to her bed. And it's this re- it really felt as if they were blowing off the criticism and saying, yeah, I mean, we, we've heard you, but we, we're not going to do anything. And then that has kind of continued with people associated with the show taking a somewhat dismissive attitude towards it on Twitter, namely Al Jean, who has been the showrunner for the show for 17 years at this point, and uh, most recently Harry Shearer, who made a bunch of specious arguments on Twitter by basically saying things like, well, under that logic... Mel Blanc shouldn't have voiced Porky Pig because he's not a pig. It's like, he's not really the same dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're a comedy legend, but maybe you are too old to grasp <laughs> the, why this is a problem. Yeah, I've kind of watched this from afar because, I mean, I don't want to be one of those people who say, oh, I gave up on The Simpsons, um, you know, when it stopped being good, however long ago that was. I never really watched The Simpsons. Um, and it wasn't for any kind of hipster reasons. I just, I just never really watched it. I've seen episodes. And I think they're really funny, but I don't, and have never obsessed over it the way that that people love to do. And I don't know why that is. Mm. Maybe that's something we can re-examine. Um, so I've kind of watched this unfold, and it seems to me that The Simpsons, which is always 
something of an odd beast, given the fact that it airs on Fox, was never afraid to thumb its nose at um, uh, self-righteous people and attitudes. And it seems like they really fucked it here. Mm. <laughs> they really have, like, essentially just turned straight uh, to the camera, looked right down the lens and just gone, Meh? you yeah. know what I mean? Just shrugged it off, which is perhaps the end game of a show that has been in what many people say is, you know, a decline for a long time and is now mm. the point at which it's, you know, it's, a, it's, you know, it used to be your funny best mate, but now he's drunk at a wedding and he's embarrassing everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it, it seems to suggest that that particular reaction seems to suggest that the writers either do not understand why people have a problem with a poo or they do understand the controversy and they don't care. Mm. Neither which is a great look. No. And I think, like, this is... The, the idea of saying, like, oh, you know, this was considered inoffensive is also kind of a false argument to make because, like, a poo has always been racist, as like the very idea of it, not just the fact that he's voiced by a white guy and the character is Indian, but you know he is an embodiment of a lot of stereotypes about Indians, particularly in American culture. He runs a store. He is in an arranged marriage. He has eight children. <laughs> he is corrupt and sneaky. You know he has he embodies a lot of very bad ideas about. Indians in uh, and the the thing that's particularly bad about this even though the show has used him to comment on the bigotry of other Americans and they have deepened him as a character and they have you know they have done other things like more subtly with him you know it's not a character that has been consistently used to denigrate Indians you know that different writers have used him for different reasons and, and some have used him very well he is also for for a very long time, he was basically the only image that people had of Indians in American pop culture. Mm -hmm. You know, the joke you know that I've been thinking all this week is that when The Simpsons started, the most prominent Indian in American pop culture was Fisher Stevens, who <laughs> was not Indian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and in The Problem with the Pooh, uh, Hari Kondabolu and all the people he talks to, people like Aziz Ansari and Cal Penn, uh, you know, all these people who um, have, since these people who are of uh, South Asian descent talk about how the character negatively impacted their lives. Like, people would always do impressions of a poo at them because even if they weren't of Indian descent, they were close enough for kind of casual racists and that's, you know, negatively impacted their lives for, and the lives of, you know, of whole generations of Indian Americans and, and South Asian Americans for 30, nearly 30 years at this point. And the, so the problem was never, oh, you know, people, this was fine at one point and everyone's just got too, too sensitive. It's, this was always bad. It has had a very bad effect on the community that it is representing but now there are more prominent actors, writers, creators, directors in American pop culture who can stand up and say, hey, this is bad. You guys should stop doing this. And 
even within The Simpsons itself, there and within the episode in which they comment on this, there's this weird double standard at play because uh, in the episode, the kind of other plot, apart from the Lisa Marge thing, is how Bart picks up a copy of The, the Art of War by Sun Tzu and starts using its lessons to try and, you know, get one over on Homer. And in that, Sun Tzu appears as a character and he is voiced by Jimmy O. Yang, who is uh, in... Silicon Valley. He's the guy that Ehrlich teams up with in Silicon Valley, and he is an actor of you know of Hong Kong um, descent. Mm-hmm. And it's just that thing where he's saying, you know, in the old days, The Simpsons would have just had one of the regular actors voice that character because it's not a big part, but they would have got Dan Castellaneta or Hank Azaria to do an Asian accent, but they didn't because they realised that would look bad. Mm-hmm. So they they know that doing this is bad. And they know there's a solution to it, which is that you actually hire an Indian actor to voice the character or you retire the character gracefully, but they're not willing to do it because it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Which is, like you say, not a good look. No, it's very... As someone who is a huge fan of the show, it's my probably my favourite TV show of all time. It's something that uh, I think about constantly and, you know... Jokes from certainly the early years still make me laugh all the time, and watching a lot of those early shows is is still like a joy. Uh, it's it is very discouraging as someone who's been a fan of the show for pretty much my entire life to watch it and think, oh, they're they're so complacent and self satisfied in themselves now, and they're so comfortable in their position as an icon iconic institution they don't feel the need to change or to take on criticism Uh, and yeah it's very disappointing Mm, yeah yeah do you think there's any way like for the because the thing is the lead time on animation stuff is like always forever do you know what i mean it takes a long time to do anything like Mm. it's not south park where they bang out an episode in like two weeks and can respond to things as they're going do you think it's been a long time before this is ever raised again or do you think is this something they're going to perhaps think and respond to and, and, and then come back at like next season or something? Or do you think that was it for them? They've done, they're done. Al Jean did say after he had, you know, gone on Twitter and just basically retweeted articles or tweets from people saying like, I never found it defensive, um, which is not, again, not a great look was, you know, this isn't the end of the conversation. You know, we're, we're going to think about this and maybe revisit it in future. Which, to me, strikes as, you know, the TV, powerful TV showrunner equivalent of, like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm trying to delete it. But I think, likely, you know, if if the controversy keeps up, then either they will revisit it next year or they will just phase out Apu. Because they phased out characters in the past, usually because the actor passed away or because um, they got into a contract dispute and killed the characters off, uh, as happened to the actress who voiced uh, Ned Flanders' wife, who they they just killed her off really unceremoniously because they got into a dispute with the actress. You know, that is their option, and it's not like Apu is a constant figure in the show. You know, they they could do that. They could write a story about the Quickie Mart burning down and Apu leaving and a new store opening up, you know. 
that there are things they could do. It's just about whether they have the fortitude to do it or if they just think, wow, the show's only got like a couple of more years in it. Let's, let's not bother. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll eventually run out the clock on this thing. Although it's still like the most popular show that airs on Sunday nights on Fox. So maybe it's going to run for another 10 years and they will eventually be forced to address this. Mm, yeah, I guess, you know, it's, the thing, if you're going to be around so long, you uh, always run the risk of uh, just kind of sliding into irrelevancy. Mm. And, um, yeah, you can see it. Yeah. Uh, and I think you, that's reflected in the very nature of The Simpsons in that it's a show where the characters don't age, the world just kind of changes a little bit around them. Like, they now have a smart TV, but it's still essentially the same characters from 1989. And this seems to be a case of... Where, where that lack of change and lack of growth and evolution has caught up to them in a major way because people are like, this is this is a, a really, really bad thing to still be doing in the year of our Lord, 2018. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. In other news, uh, we sadly learned this week that Milos Forman, the director of, amongst other things, the Best Picture and Best Director winning movies, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus passed away at the age of 86. And, you know, it's it's sad in his own right because he had directed a lot of, of really great movies. Those two obviously is most famous, but you know, you've got kind of interesting later movies like The People versus Larry Flint, uh, even his last feature film, uh, Goya's Ghosts, uh, and obviously movies he directed in the Czech Republic like Fireman's Ball and Loves of a Blonde. And it's always sad when someone who's created a lot of great work uh, leaves us but i think for a lot of people certainly you know a lot of the people i follow on twitter there was the double sadness that everyone was like oh man it's a real shame and wanting to revisit his work and then finding out that it's actually really hard to find most of his movies despite the fact that he was a major hollywood director for like 30 something years and a lot of his movies have been put out in have been in print you know dvd print for a long time but they're very hard to find now in a post physical media age and an age of streaming mm, yeah it kind of on occasions like this it brings up how archaic the system of like rights ownership and and mm. like legals is the you know the reason that there isn't just some uh, kind of service where you can say oh I just like to check out what that person does. You type in their name and then brings up every film they've ever done and you pay X for it, whatever, you know. That doesn't exist. Like, after we had the conversation beforehand, we kind of, before we were going to uh, record this episode, we talked about what we are going to talk about in the news and we brought this up and I just typed in uh, Amadeus, like Milos Forman's most famous movie. I typed it into iTunes, does not exist as a mm. movie. And it's just like, well, that's frustrating. We've got the technology <laughs> to deliver everything. Uh, and, like, you know, rights shouldn't be a problem because you're just going to pay for it individually. It doesn't matter. But, no, can't get it. It's weird. Like, Milos Forman's one of those guys. You always assume that he's made way more films than he has because, mm. um, you know, they always loom large on the horizon. And, like, I remember when I um, kind of... Uh, probably talked about this on the show before but like i've spent many years working through this time 100 greatest novels list just to kind of try and yeah. broaden my cultural horizons and i read the, the book ragtime by el doctor which is you know a great book and i was like oh, i wonder if everyone's made a film of this yeah they did milosh foreman did 
And it's got mm. like an amazing cast, and it's one of those Oscar-nominated movies. It got nominated for a ton of Oscars and didn't win any. I don't think. I think. Did you tell me that is like the the, the record holder for most nominations without winning something? Uh, no, that's the Turning Point, ah, the okay. ballet movie starring Mikhail Baryshnikov. Yeah, I think I do think that Ragtime did get nominated for a bunch and didn't win any, and just promptly forgot. No one ever talks about Ragtime, the movie. Of, of, you know. Uh, a film um, kind of with an A-list director, an A-list cast, based on a, you know, highly regarded piece of literature that never gets talked about because Milos Forman also made another, like, a load of other great films which kind of, like, uh, cast it into the shadows. So, like I say, he's, he's someone you think that, oh, you know, he, he's made dozens of classics and he hasn't, he's just made lots of good films that mm. you know he made a, a fewer amount of films but they're all great yeah and the the bigger kind of concern about it i think is that a lot of his czech movies are fairly hard to find at this point even though two of them like i said uh, loves of a blonde and fireman's ball were both put out by criterion many years ago so they exist on dvd but like the fireman's ball one is over here is like $60 because I think it's out of print. So it's like, it's not easy to get hold of. And Loves of a Blonde is not as expensive, but still fairly hard to get hold of. But then his first American movie, Taking Off, which is a movie which I believe features a lot of music performances and features an early performance by Kathy, uh, Kathy Bates, is a, is very, very hard. I don't think it's ever been issued on home media in the US because it has a lot of, the, the music rights are holding it up and no one can, no one has had the time or the the money to kind of work all those things out and put it out, which is a terrible shame because uh, Joe Dante said on Twitter today, you know, that he he thinks it's one of the seminal movies about what America was like in 1971. You know, it's about a wide array of characters all kind of representing different points of view about what America was at that point in time. And it's a real shame that it's very, very hard to find out. It did exist on YouTube like years ago, like someone had uploaded the whole thing onto YouTube and I kept meaning to watch it because everyone said, oh, you know, this is a, a really great unheralded movie uh, and then I went to find it today and yeah, not there anymore because clearly someone had said, yeah, you can't have any of the rights to this music. Uh, it's just a terrible shame. It's illustrative of how, you know, we live in a a, a, a great age for availability of media through streaming like it's never been easier to watch a movie in terms of like being able to just look it up and watch it from the the comfort of your home but the ways in which which movies are available is still incredibly limited by kind of outdated laws surrounding copyright and the fact that you know a lot of movies that were released on physical media at one point or another no one has thought to you know buy out the rights and put them all online mm. or you know like netflix used to have like a really great catalog of streaming movies from the past you know kind of purged them all a few years ago and now it's kind of hard to find a lot of them uh, in it with that kind of like ease uh, and, and yeah it feels like we're in a, a very difficult time for you know classic movies being available through streaming and things like that maybe something like filmstruck will eventually grow large enough and comprehensive enough that people will have access to most of the great old movies but we're not there yet and it feels like the holes in the the kind of the web of all these various streaming services is still too large and it means that 
essentially the entire body of work of a great filmmaker are now is now very very hard to actually track down and watch mm, yeah I, I feel as a kind of a postscript to this i'd like to kind of say that i watched the uh, documentary jim and andy uh, mm. and the great beyond the 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 very kind of uh, absorbing documentary about jim carrey's total immersion into the role of playing andy kaufman in the movie man in the moon directed by milos foreman Mm, um, and yeah. Milos Forman is a, uh, shall we say, frustrated bystander mm. in much of the um, much of the uh, film's running time. Whenever when he ever is in there, um, he seems to kind of like play along with it for for for, for the majority of um, Jim Carrey's madcap scheme. Um, but then just there's moments where he's just like kind of exasperated and just wanting to make a film mm-hmm. and. I kind of really liked the idea that um, this kind of great master of film was being tested by this impish buffoon um, kind of losing his mind slowly uh, by going method and not really fully understanding or realising what it would do to him as a person and what it would do to production and what it would do to the crew. Um, um, but like seeing him on screen doing what he did was, uh, was delightful and uh, um, that kind of will be my abiding memory of him because that's the last time I saw him. Mm. And before we get on to our main topic, you know, the the story of the problem of streaming brings us on to another major story, which was the, and as we alluded to, the kind of like tete-a-tete between Netflix and Cannes, where this week it was announced that Netflix were pulling all of the movies that they were planning to showcase at Cannes from the festival, which didn't come as that much of a surprise because Cannes last month announced that they were not going to allow any movies to compete that weren't planning to have a theatrical run in French theatres, which, because Netflix basically don't put any of their movies in theatres except, you know, for two weeks in Los Angeles to qualify for the Oscars, meant that all of the movies that they would have been running in competition would be ineligible. So they decided to take all of the other stuff they were planning to show, such as the newly finished version of Orson Welles is The Other Side of the Wind, which they have been restoring for the better part of two or three years, which was going to get its kind of world premiere at Cannes, and, you know, was being seen as something of a big homecoming because Welles was a beloved figure uh, in in Cannes. And it seems that this is a very kind of clear focal point for the ongoing conflict between, uh, about, you know, cinema's future, essentially, because... Up until the last decade or so, the theatrical experience had primacy. You know, you could watch movies at home, but, you know, you had to wait until they'd been in theatres and or you'd be direct-to-video stuff, which was a fairly small market and people didn't really take those things seriously. Now, in the age of Netflix and Amazon Prime, that is no longer quite the case. You know, Amazon put their movies in theatres for a brief period of time before they appear on their service. Netflix put all of their movies up day and date, and there is this real sense from traditional producer uh, distributors, from theatre chains, and from studios about, you know, what it will do if movies are available at home instantly all the time you know what this will do to the theatrical experience which presumably will shrink and become more niche and 
you know, the, both sides of this conflict are, are pretty entrenched at this point. You know, there's lots of people who are purists for the original, the, the, the traditional way of seeing movies, but there are also a lot of people who, you know, take the side of Netflix that, you know, cinema's trending this way anyway, denying that Netflix movies are real movies is self-defeating and it's just kind of uh luditism <laughs> you know like everyone being anti basically anti-future essentially because this is what we're all barreling towards anyway matt where do you fall on this debate i'm not really likely to fall on the can side of the debate mm. um because generally their attitude has been if even if like they want to say okay well, we're not interested in stuff you, like, don't want to screen theatrically in France. Mm -hmm. um, that is them just making it official, what they were saying, like, in previous years, which is Netflix is destroying cinema. Yeah. Um, and for a Netflix to, you know, lovingly restore an Orson Welles film is probably the opposite of, like, what that stands for. It's mm -hmm. a little bit like they're saying, well, we don't want you here. And then Netflix is like, well, we've got some really good films by interesting filmmakers. And then they're saying, well, you've got to show them in cinemas in France. But it's just like, well, just, just, just like accept it. It's not mm. like it's it's such they're such meaningless definitions. Like the you know, I watched it in one room full of people over another room full of people. It's fucking stupid. Mm. But by the same token, Netflix could have screened them outside a competition. They could yeah. have still shown them. So that feels like uh, a spiteful gesture. Um, mm. But at that point, I don't particularly blame Netflix. Um, and at the end of the day, all I give a fuck about is content. Mm. Um, you know, I'd love to be one of those people who's like, well, I watched all my films theatrical on 35mm, um, you know, in a wonderful bijou cinema. But that's not true. I watched the majority of the films growing up on fucking VHFs. And I know it's yeah. terrible. I watched them in my bedroom on a crappy square television and I had constantly adjusting the tracking with my toes because I couldn't be bothered to move. <laughs> like, now I don't have to do that. I can watch them on excellent, like, you know, high-definition quality. I can watch, you know, the Philadelphia story right now if I wanted to on the big screen, like, in HD on streaming. That's great. And I'm super happy by that. And it's only not moving faster because of the kind of intransigent, is that a word? Yeah. Um, like attitude of the um, people like, the, you know, the guys behind Can. Like it's the, the, the method of delivery <laughs> is not the important thing here. You are supposed mm -hmm. to be celebrating works of visual arts and what you're really doing is arguing over semantics. Yeah. Which is bollocks. So they can fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I think I can definitely see both sides, but I'm not. I'm not a purist in terms of like, I don't like like you. I grew up watching stuff on VHS, and a lot of that stuff wasn't great quality, mm. either because you know it was just a bad format that didn't couldn't hold as much data as you know a celluloid essentially. So the image was always going to be bad, and if you watched the movie a lot, it degraded pretty badly. And also, if you recorded something off of TV, which is where I recorded a lot of movies from. You know, that was not going to be the greatest quality, especially if, like me, you weren't particularly great at editing out the adverts. Uh, 
you would always catch just a little bit of the tail end of a Toys R Us ad and like the Channel 4 ident before it went back into Terminator 2 or whatever. Mm. Um, so like I'm all for streaming becoming more being better being more prevalent uh, and also acting as a way that more people can see movies sooner you know that you are breaking down the 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 idea that something like mudbound can be available to everyone everywhere rather than opening in four theaters in la and new york and then you having to wait weeks and weeks for it to show up anything that breaks down that kind of gatekeeping is good uh, in in my 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 opinion, at the same time, you know, I do think that there is something very nice about the theatrical experience. Experience. I went to go and see A Quiet Place the other week, and uh, that was a movie that I enjoyed a fair bit. But what I really liked was the fact that it's a movie that, by its nature and its title, is very quiet. No one in the audience talked for the entire time. Any time anyone moved or rustled, you really heard them, and everyone was very aware that they should not make too much noise because the movie itself was very very quiet and that was quite nice and that was a really indelible experience that i don't think you would get if you watched it just you know on your own at home because there'd be too many distractions and i do think that the theatrical experience benefits some movies like something like annihilation which is a movie that i really loved i think benefited from being seen on a big screen because it forces you to engage with it its particular pacing in a way that you know doesn't allow for distractions you can't check your phone unless you're an absolute dick uh you know you can't you you shouldn't you aren't you're not constantly being distracted by different things you're not pausing it because you need to answer an email or whatever you know you have to let the, the movie unfold and you have to engage with it so i think that there is something beautiful and to get lofty sacred about the cinema going experience but i believe that the, the theatrical experience and streaming like fish and men to quote an old George W. Bush speech can coexist. And that there is, you know, there is a, a, a place for both in the world. Cinema is as a theatrical experience is going to probably, like I said, it's going to shrink. It's going to become more niche. It's probably going to become more like theater. It's probably going to cost more. It already does. If you go and see like a movie in IMAX, you know, that is a pricey expense to get the best possible experience. But, you know, I think we are possibly living in the dying days of theatrical exhibition as a real kind of like mass, uh, as a kind of like a real mass form, particularly when you think about in America, most, many cinemas are in malls and malls across the country are closing down because retail's collapsing and things like that. So, we are probably going to go into a future where streaming is the dominant form and then theater, theatrical experience is really for people who are diehards who want to kind of have that experience and pay extra for it, uh, which I think has been something we've talked, we talked about like five years ago, how that mm. was what was going to happen. And this just seems to accentuate how much that is, is the future we are heading towards. But I, I think the combative attitude between Cannes and Netflix doesn't help that. I think it presents them as in opposition when really they should both just represent two different ways that cinema can be. And I think that there is room for compromise. I don't think it's too much to ask Netflix to put their movies out in theaters just to kind of like mollify the old guards and to make that transition a little more uh, comfortable for all the, all involved. Uh, but yeah, I think in this instance can is maybe just kind of kicking up a fuss in a way that doesn't kind of shine glory on them and Netflix whilst having, you know, problems in terms of how they 
promote their original movies and the fact they don't make many good ones, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is also a problem, but who are in, are giving chances to interesting filmmakers. You know, Jeremy Solnier's new movie's on there and he had a a... a a delectable quote where he said that anyone who says that his movie, his new movie isn't a real movie, can, he will kindly stab them in the face. So, uh, so he's clearly feels very positive, very positive about the fact that his movie is going to get made regardless of where it's going to get shown. I think, you know, Netflix, that, that demonstrates that Netflix is doing good, but maybe everyone else, everyone involved in the whole spat could be uh, addressing it in a more constructive way than they currently are. Mm, yeah, it's very. It's not becoming the way that it's uh, it's, it's going down at the minute. It's very undignified. Mm, yeah, but then I'd just like to say that like Can have never really been ones to talk when it comes to mm. dignity, given they'll fucking <laughs> boo anything. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, that's they good. Booed point. the fucking Netflix logo in a cinema last <laughs> year, so they can they can wind their necks in. Yeah, that's a very good point. <laughs> We're talking about the future of cinema, and I think Rob, that leads us into our main topic, which we'll be talking about a movie from, you know, many years past, but which itself augured in kind of the future of, certainly the future of blockbuster cinema, Jurassic Park, which this year turns 25 years old. For people who don't know, which I think is probably a pretty small number, but, uh, you know, uh, Jurassic Park was uh, uh, based on a Michael Crichton novel released in 1993, directed by Steven Spielberg, I believe, young whippersnapper, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, was uh, who had a pretty good year that year, considering he directed the highest grossing movie of the year and also the movie that won Best Picture and Best Director. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's about dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, it's uh, about an island full of genetically modified dinosaurs that is going to be opened as a theme park, but uh, that very quickly becomes apparent that this is as bad an idea as it sounds because the dinosaurs break out, uh, mainly because of Newman. But, you know, it, it was probably always going to happen. He just facilitated it. And, you know, lots of people die. They escape from the island. And then the world is never quite the same, both because people keep going back to the island and keep getting killed because no one ever fucking learns. But also because the movie was a real kind of watershed moment for cgi and was a huge cultural touchstone for an entire generation of very impressionable film goers mm, yeah it feels like and you know the probably the reason we're talking about this is if you talk about modern cinema as in probably post jaws right a mm-hmm. film that steven spielberg directed uh, if you you know i've looked him up on wikipedia i've gone back through mm-hmm. his uh, his filmography you know, films before then and after them, they feel very different. Mm-hmm. And Jurassic Park feels like the film that pushed the blockbuster into the thoroughly modern era. Like, mm-hmm. it had photorealistic CGI. It had, like, spectacle. It was, um, you know, marketed and um, kind of released in a way that now we see as being very, very familiar. Um, and it feels to me that it's one of those films that, you know, you see the vibrating glass on the floor, on the, uh, on the, on the, the, uh, the dashboard of, of the car, and you see that parodied in other places. You mm-hmm. see, you know, you 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 kind of see the the objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are done in other things, and people get it because it is a cultural touchstone. Yeah, and I just 
feel like it's interesting that when we talked about why we'd talk about Jurassic Park, that neither you or I would put it in our top ten Steven Spielberg movies, but for mm. a lot of people it is their go-to film full stop. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, that, I think that's probably going to be a lot of our conversation is trying to figure out why we don't like it as much as other people. And I, I will say that I did like it a lot as a kid because it, you know, it's dinosaurs. It was certainly something that kindled my love of dinosaurs as a kid. Uh, it, it was what got me to buy, and I'm sure everyone of, of my age will remember this, anyone who grew up in England, it made me sign up to that dinosaur magazine that you subscribe to in order to get the little plastic pieces of a T-Rex ske- ske- uh, skeleton that you then assembled and then painted to make look like a T-Rex, which I got my granddad to do because I wasn't very good at painting. But, you know, that was, uh, that was a kind of a big thing for me, was seeing these dinosaurs brought to life essentially on the silver screen and being like, Oh wow, this is amazing. And then as I grew up and become more kind of savvy about the way movies are made and the ways in which effects evolved throughout the nineties, which was a, you know, definitely a huge era for CGI. Obviously two years later, you get toy story, the first entirely computer animated movie coming out. And over the next 10 years or the next eight years really kind of peaking with the release of the first Lord of the Rings movie, which took CGI to an entirely different level in terms of like scale and grandiosity. You could really see this clear change. Like Jurassic Park was so huge. So suddenly all studios became devoted to trying to master this if this this technology that seemed to have reached maturation after sort of many years of false starts and people creating works that looked pretty good but couldn't quite stand up to scrutiny in the way that the groundbreaking mix between CGI and physical effects that we saw on display in Jurassic Park kind of brought about. Mm. And the way that the way that those effects are used um can be seen everywhere any mm. any film in which s- some kind of supernatural entity that is large exists yeah. um like the way that it is filmed and the way that the the Jurassic Park captures the awe of such a large thing existing in a world where humans also exist mm. is heavily indebted to to Jurassic Park um, also, and like, you know, not to sound like too much of a dinosaur nerd, um, Jurassic Park also showed us dinosaurs the way they'd never been shown on film before, which is, our, you know, our best estimates, like, not scientifically accurate before. Um, like, and, you know, they even make mention of it in the film that the idea that, that um, dinosaurs were, like, cold-blooded and had to live in swamps to support their body weights and drag their tails behind them. Like, these ideas are, in the 80s and 90s, were becoming very unpopular in terms of science. And now, you know, you, you can go to any natural history museum in the world and you'll see that the dinosaur skeletons have been reposed uh, so you won't see sauropods dragging their tails behind them. You won't see theropods standing upright like humans. They are always at a kind of like a flat 90-degree angle using their tails to counterbalance because, like, people didn't understand, like, um, prehistoric anatomy as much as they did in the 80s. And, and you saw 
dinosaurs being dynamic and, mm. you know, moving more realistically and moving like animals rather than monsters, uh, which was a huge thing. And you see that in pretty much every piece of uh, any kind of like monster design now. Um, owes a huge, huge debt. Like, look at something like Cloverfield. Yeah. The way that Cloverfield is filmed, the way that um, they have the monster act very naturalistically, and, you know, the way they have the actors move around with it and interact with it is very indebted to Jurassic Park. The film, the, the Godzilla remake, do you remember that whole bit of the Godzilla remake where the, all the eggs hatch and there's tiny Godzillas everywhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could say yeah. that owes a debt to, uh, to Jurassic Park. But I mean, just, just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, generally, like the way that sound design is used in big movies, um, like all of those things, you know, com- their lineage was born in, you know, the DNA comes comes from that little kind of uh, mosquito trapped in sap that is Jurassic Park. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know we were talking about Black Panther at the start. I think it's hard to imagine the MCU as a whole existing without. Jurassic Park coming along and really exposing the entire world to the possibilities of CGI. Obviously, there aren't at that many digital effects shots in Jurassic Park as there are in basically every movie that's made now, mm-hmm. including movies that don't seem to explicitly call for CGI. Like a lot of period piece movies nowadays, they'll use it every so often to like touch something up, like remove a building that isn't meant to be there or put something that isn't meant to be there uh you know there's lots of cgi now is just kind of a tool that everyone uses and it's used um it's sometimes it's misused <laughs> but you know it's it's now accepted as just one of the many tools that filmmakers can use and but at the time it was something that was largely untested on this scale and you know pretty much the entirety of modern certainly modern blockbuster filmmaking is contained within things like you know the first the, it, it, uh, any of the scenes where like the t-rex is chasing a car or something where you really do get this seamless blending of digital elements with practical elements you are seeing humans react to something that isn't there in a way that feels real or they're reacting to something that is kind of partly there but you know not entirely there and not when they they saw it it certainly didn't look like they would see it in you know the 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 final product and i think that it is very it's hard to understate just sorry it's hard to overstate just how central to like the modern story of of movies Jurassic Park is and what a huge hand Steven Spielberg and his team had in shaping the way that we now view the world certainly in, in the realms of sci-fi and fantasy cinema it does feel as if there is a, a pre-jurassic park and a post-jurassic park mm. it also feels like very similar to jaws in in the sense that we have sequels to jaws and we mm. have sequels to jurassic park but they are also very very tenuous because <laughs> the the elevator pitch for both jaws and jurassic park are so simple and concise that there's really not much fat there 
in the you know like a shark is terrorizing a human populace um we can't really do much other than if we want to make another jaws film add another shark in different <laughs> water with different people mm. uh with jurassic park you know a dinosaur theme dinosaurs in a theme park run amok that is you know um, you know i'd be sold on that but the thing is they make a sequel and you're like oh okay right we'll tenuously tie this to to the first book and uh, okay we'll forget that in the end of the first book some of these characters are dead namely Ian Malcolm and we'll just rewrite the we'll retcon this so he's alive to be a, a protagonist in the second book and you're like okay they go back to the dinosaur island for reasons for reasons um, mm-hmm. and you know they don't really work out and then you're like oh well okay they kind of had to make a sequel because it was it was kind of popular that movie. Let's, let's just see if they do mm. that one more time, and then they do you know a three, and they're like, well, it's, it's that movie again. They're going back to the island for reasons, um, and then you're like, well, okay, maybe they exhausted all the possibilities of Jurassic Park, and then oh no, wind forward twenty years, all of a sudden we've got Jurassic World, which is Jurassic Park again. Um, what could go wrong? Um, and then yeah, that happens, and then we've got the Fallen Kingdom, a a, a blockbuster um, from this summer's slate of blockbusters. I could be less enthused about if i tried because Mm -hmm. it seems to be they go back to um they go back to the island for reasons but plus volcano yeah which i honestly i think that i'd like to see more sequels take that attack of just Mm -hmm. they go it's the same plot essentially but now volcanoes like sweet home alabama 2 i could see that if reese witherspoon's returning to her small town but a volcano is about to erupt and she has to kind of help everyone i think you know, whilst, you know, kind of using her down-home, small girl, uh, you know, homegrown ways to really save people from uh, a lava flu- flow. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that, Ed, at least call it Sweet Home Krakatoa. Because <laughs> that would be perfect. Um, that would be, if, if that series had been created in the 50s, yeah. that absolutely would have been <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama, Sweet Home Krakatoa, yeah. Sweet Home... <laughs> Sweet Home Pompeii, the yeah. kind of like prequel about all the characters uh, in the the in many years BC, whenever Greece was around. Mm. How about um, um, uh, uh, Lava of the Bride? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would have that would have been a lot better than the uh, the actual sequel we got. If um, you know, the the wedding's about to go ahead and then lava starts kind of spewing out and then Martin Short's kind of designer is, like, really freaking out because suddenly he does, none of his uh, designs match the new colour scre- color scheme of scalding hot red liquid. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that will throw a spanner in the works to any wedding, no matter how well planned. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, like, like uh, how in today's age and the obsession of studios to... Um, have shared universes and franchise everything. Like, I, I'm still struggling to think how people are still falling for <laughs> Jurassic Park, just redoing mm. Jurassic Park every time. Well, I think it's just it's just an idea. It's a good idea. Like, it hasn't been done well more than once, <laughs> mm. I think I would say. Although there are, um, there's, there's kind of elements of Lost World I enjoy, particularly the overhead shot of the outlines of the raptors going through the tall grass which is pretty cool but yeah it doesn't really think and the third one i think there's a kind of like a pulpy silliness to it that is a lot of fun such as the bit where they go into a like a a place that's meant to be a repository of all kind of like 
taxidermied or models of dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and one of them is looking at a raptor that's you know and then suddenly the raptor moves and it's like oh no it's a real one but apparently it had learned in addition to opening doors how to stand perfectly still to kind of mess with people which uh I enjoy as a as a as a as a case of people being like as a, as a case of Alexander Payne and Tim Naylor, uh, Jim Naylor, who wrote that movie, being like, "What could we do that would be fun? Mm. <laughs> what what could we do that would be super silly?" And uh, you know that that movie has some pleasures to it. But yeah, it's it's the, the first one is really the one that nailed the entire idea of people go to an island that's overrun with dinosaurs, mayhem ensues, and some, there's some talk about, like, philosophy and chaos theory and whatnot. Mm, yeah. It's, like, it reminds me that there's, like, a famous quote, I think, I'm pretty sure it's Kim Newman, the Empire writer, mm. who said something like, 99% of films would be better if they had dinosaurs in them, but 99% of films with dinosaurs in are terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is, you know, it's pretty accurate, I guess. Mm. Like, there ain't, it's not... It's not a crowded field. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you get the feeling that if they make ninety-nine Jurassic Park movies and you know another or, or hundred Jurassic Park movies, which is not outside of the realm of possibilities given the the, the span of history, uh, it, they probably none of them will improve upon the first one for just really getting the whole idea right the first time. Yeah, because I mean, like, it's it's. If it's not set in in any way a theme park that's gone wrong, whether it's you know ten years after it fallen or as it's you know running amok, it's not a Jurassic Park movie. It's just a film with dinosaurs in. And mm. who's interested in that? Yeah, certainly not anyone who wanted to go and see Disney's Dinosaur or Pixar's The Good Dinosaur. Their attempt to improve on the concept that didn't quite work. <laughs> yeah, well, they're waiting for the best dinosaur, which is going to come <laughs> out like you know in a few years' time. Because yeah, both those films are pretty like kind of. Uh, and Dinosaur, the Disney movie, owes a huge debt to uh, Jurassic Park because, mm. uh, like, you know, whilst they talk, these dinosaurs, the, the modelling and everything is, you know, very similar. But yeah, like, was there like could, I don't know if you like you remember this. Like, was there like a huge dinosaur cash in post Jurassic Park? Because I seem to remember, right? There, there was like stills for the movie Last Action Hero released, mm-hmm. and there's a bit where like there's. Arnie Schwarzenegger and the kid who plays the kid in that film, and they're 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 next to a dinosaur model, and I remember that like featuring quite heavy in the promotion, and then when you actually see the movie, it's from the bit where they land in La Brea Tar Pits, right? Like that's <laughs> it. But like I I I kind of remember there was there was some kind of like you know push to like try and kind of work the dinosaur angle in every film, connected or not. There was certainly there was Theodore Rex. Yep. which was the movie in which Whoopi Goldberg teams up with a dinosaur to solve crimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was Tammy and the T-Rex, I think, which was an early Paul Walker and Denise Richards vehicle yep. where Paul Walker's brain gets put into the body of a T-Rex. Yeah, sure. Uh, and there, uh, I know there were a bunch of, I mean, obviously there was Dinosaurs, the sitcom, mm-hmm. which was probably the best of the things that really cashed in on Jurassic Park, although I may need to check the dates there. I kind of get the feeling that may have been around about the same time and may have been just weird parallel thinking, or it may have been that everyone was just cashing in on the success of the novel. Yeah, I mean, there was also the the PlayStation game's Dino Crisis, which was Resident Evil, but reskinned with dinosaurs. Mmm, yeah. There was uh, We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, which came out the same year as Jurassic Park and was produced by Steven Spielberg. Right which was an animated story, uh, an animated movie about dinosaurs who 
were brought from the past to modern day New York and were kind of enhanced to be super intelligent and spoke. And one of them was voiced by John Goodman. Mm. Uh, which I remember watching a lot as a kid because I just loved dinosaurs. Uh, yeah, dinosaurs, the sitcom, started before Jurassic Park came out. but It uh, laid the groundwork in many ways. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Earl Sinclair was a real kind of, like, pioneer for dinosaur representation on American television. Mm, I think uh, somewhere in, like, 92, 93, Steven Spielberg was watching the sitcom Dinosaurs and was like, do you know what this needs? A gritty reboot. <laughs> Yeah, he's not worried about losing his job. He wants to rip uh, Richard uh, Schiff in half. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and also there was stuff like uh, Dino Riders, which I remember when hey, I was a kid. That was, I had the toys of those when I was a kid. Mm. Um, yeah. And I had, at, at the time, uh, back in the late 80s, my favourite dinosaur was the Styracosaurus, which many people will know is a ceratopsian with multiple kind of frills coming <laughs> off its crest. Um, mm-hmm. And to this day, my toothbrush holder in my bathroom is a uh, hollowed-out Styracosaurus toy because I'm not a man-child. Um, <laughs> um, but that was my favourite dinosaur as a kid, and principally because, uh, um, you know, I had the Dino Rider uh, toy where they'd got that beautiful, majestic, prehistoric creature and strapped a tank to its back. Because, um, <laughs> I mean, if anyone is unfamiliar with Dino Rider, this is a genuine toy range and cartoon series where, for some reasons, I think, like, people went back in time and there was some Nazis... And they uh, kind of trained dinosaurs and strapped tanks to them and, like, uh, other types of uh, um, kind of mechanical accoutrements to dinosaurs. And they just kind of fought each other. And, like, yeah. the uh, the good guys were all, like, these kind of, like, graceful giant herbivores. And all the bad guys were, like, and all the meat-eating dinosaurs and the, uh, you know, the, the prehistoric flying reptiles. Because we all know the dinosaurs can't fly. So, pteranodons. Mm. And they all can't dinosaurs. But those were the bad ones as well and it was kind of a weird concept in fact the more i say this the more i'd watch a dino <laughs> dino riders shared cinematic universe mm. and totally i also remember the big conceit of it was that the good guys trained their dinosaurs and you know kind of built a bond of trust with them in order to kind of take part in the fights but the bad ones just stuck devices that brainwashed them on them yeah i mean you would do that to me eating dinosaurs though because you'd yeah. be a fool not to yeah uh, yeah, so and that one started in 1988. So it's, I guess there was just a big upswell of interest in dinosaurs more generally, and Jurassic Park was probably one of the that was the most significant one of that mm. period because it's the one that's lasted. But that yeah, there was definitely a sense that everyone was just cashing in on dinosaur fever in the early 90s uh, and the late 80s anyway. And I think uh, Jurassic Park really kind of exacerbated that or, or kind of supercharged it. Mm. Um, I'd also like to uh, lay a fair bit of blame at the door of Jurassic Park for popularising the idea that velociraptors looked in any way and behaved like they do in the movies. Because let's be <laughs> honest, they're actually the size of large turkey, um, mainly feathered. Uh, it would go around in packs of like dozens because they were useless on their own. The, the animal you see in the Jurassic Park films is actually a Dononychus which has been uh, renamed Velociraptor because it sounds cooler than Dononychus. Yeah, it's it's yeah. You, you can't really shorten it to something as cool as raptors. Yeah, yeah. Which you know is kind of a shame 
because you know mm. you, I want accuracy. Like the Dilophosaurus, the spitting dinosaur. I mean, there's nothing in the fossil record to to suggest it was poisonous or <laughs> or even spat. And it, it also the actual animal in in real life was about four or five times the size. But in the movie, they made it smaller because they didn't want to confuse it with the T Rex. Even though mm. someone like me, I'd know the difference. Yeah, and. Uh, one of the things I think also that's, that was really interesting, you, you alluded to this earlier, was the way in which it fundamentally changed film marketing mm-hmm. or really took trends that were already considering and perfected them, like scientists in the lab, where <laughs> like my, my, one of my overwhelming memories of the release of Jurassic Park was going to a McDonald's in Nuneaton and the windows all being covered with like frosted glass and the Jurassic, uh, the Jurassic park logo and like claw marks on it. And they'd, they'd really gone to town to kind of make it feel like it was an extension of the movie. Like you were going into a McDonald's, but you were also going into some place that in a very minor way that can be set up by bored teenagers on a Thursday night at the end of their shift. Um, really contributes to the experience of or feels like a continuation of the the experience of seeing the movie and there was cross promotion there was a blitz of advertising everything was Jurassic Park related for you know the time that the movie was out and that is pretty much the standard now if a movie comes out then and it's a, a big studio release they're going to do everything they can to promote it there's going to be Groot Pez dispensers there's Mm. going to be a special Denny's Star Trek breakfast and Matt Singer from Screen Crush is going to eat it you know (laughs) uh you know there is this sense that uh it was one of the first cases that you know I certainly can think of where film marketing became overwhelming and inescapable in a sense that was just like we cannot leave a square inch of the human consciousness uh, devoid of some trace of Jurassic Park because if we do that then we risk someone we r- risk losing a ticket sale and I think as the you know the numbers of people who go to the theatre has gone down that instinct has become even greater now there's that sense that you really have to push it as far as humanly possible you need to get Dwayne the Rock Johnson to co-host the trivia game HQ because you need to try and get people to go and watch Rampage. Anytime you can think of any kind of bit of cross-promotion, you're going to grab it because that may be the difference between like a $30 million opening weekend and a $40 million opening weekend or whatever. Mm. And it's weird to think that Jurassic Park took this to the extent of having, at one point in the movie, a very slow pan across general, genuine merchandise you could buy <laughs> actually yeah. in the film. Yeah, yeah. Which is so shameless. <laughs> so, <laughs> so shameless. But also, it kind of tries to uh, stay in keeping with the film. Like, the, the, the moment in the film does take place, actually... Uh, in the gift shop of Jurassic Park, but there was no need for that other than to mm. sell it. And, you know, we always talk about Steven Spielberg as being one of the great artists of our time, but he signed off on that at some point. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a great deal of synergy, although I don't even know if they would have used that word at the time, maybe invented that word, <laughs> a very a real sense of the movie exists to be a work of art, but also to propagate its kind of 
ancillary revenue streams, which also, I guess, is kind of a, a thing that emerged from Star Wars as well. But in the case of Star Wars, there was like that sense that Lucas held on to the merchandising rights because the money from that would allow him to make more movies. Mm-hmm. Whereas this more a case of we're going to showcase the stuff that people are going to spend more money on because that $7 ticket or however much it cost to buy a movie ticket in 1993 is going to turn into $200 of people spending money on T-shirts and hats and the incredibly difficult Mega Drive game. <laughs> you know, that's going to be... that. There, there was that real sense of things really spiralling out from the movie as artistic expression and singular work of art to movie as the first cog in a vast empire of you know products and and related items yeah yeah um, and it's i think it's weird to think that we kind of very negatively reacted you and i to Jurassic world Mm. But given how popular that was, it was inevitable there'd be a sequel. We're going to see it kind of burn itself out in the next two years. The one we're going to see this year, maybe one in two years' time. But it's weird to think that in, like, 20 years, they'll just reboot it again <laughs> and do the yeah. same, make the same movie again. And, the, you know, we could be sitting here kind of like like the Oh Hello guys complaining about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, and it's also interesting as an evolution of the way the the idea that certain properties are sacred and can't be remade. Like if Colin Trevorrow had been hired to just direct a straight remake of Jurassic Park, then everyone would have been up in up in arms, and it would have been like a real, you know, certainly for people of a certain generation, it would be kind of sacrilege. But the fact that he just did that, but called it a different thing and said, oh no, this happens in the continuity of the original movie, mm. then everyone was like, okay, that's fine. And kind of a similar thing happened with The Force Awakens, where it's its, its own thing, it has distinct, unique characters, but in a lot of ways it is, you know, kind of very heavily leaning on the, the blueprint of A New Hope. And it, it was very interesting seeing that evolution and maybe that, you know, Jurassic World offering its own step in the changing of blockbusters and that studios now have a new trick for rebooting. Like, uh, you know, people don't want to see a reboot of Robocop. What if, you know, we get Peter Weller back to, to, you know, kind of play the old decrepit Robocop and then he's got a new Robocop, even though it's, you know, essentially the same story or whatever. You know, that it, it definitely feels like, as we've talked about, like the idea of the legacy sequel and the, the, the soft reboot becoming more in vogue and not always successful, but successful in two very major ways in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a weird thing. And like Jurassic World now, I mean, I I actually rewatched it I think last year maybe, kind of just after the fact. And I'm still baffled by that film's success. Mm. Yeah, the, I think there's a lot to be said for the pull of nostalgia and like I say for the the fact that it's a good concept and even if you don't do it well, you can still get a lot of mileage out of, you know, dinosaur theme park things go wrong people run <laughs> from dinosaurs you know there's a lot of there's a lot of mileage you can get from that even if the results are certainly in in you know my view and your view pretty lackluster mm, yeah yeah so to kind of wrap this up have you kind of had any insights into why jurassic park 
doesn't quite chime with you the way that others do? Is it because of its legacy that at the same time that you can see it as a a thing that had a lot of positive effects in, in you know, kind of giving people a, a new tool with which to express themselves and, and, you know, making it possible for a lot of movies that now exist to exist in a form that would have been impossible otherwise. But at the same time, there is this crash commercialization part of it that as much as, you know, as, as much as, you know, I admire Steven Spielberg and as much as I can, I like the movie, it's hard to separate it from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think for me, ultimately it boils down to, I really, even as a kid, I loved the book a lot. Mm-hmm. And the whilst I, you know, it's one of my pet peeves when people say, oh, you know, the film's never good as the book, um, who generally tend to not understand the idea that adaptation exists. And, you know, there are two ways to look at any one story. Um, but the idea that in the book, the book is, is aimed at adults mm-hmm. and the film is aimed at children. <laughs> Right. And I think even as a child, I wanted to see some of the visceral gore <laughs> uh, mm. and uh, perhaps because, um, I mean, the book, I don't know if you've ever read the book, Ed, but like I have not. there is like there's points at the start of each chapter is like a, a chaos theory diagram that in the first mm. the first couple of chapters, is just a small pattern and doesn't seem like a pattern at all it just seems like random bits and then it repeats it repeats it repeats it over and over again until you see that there's patterns emerging from chaos and like the the chaos mathematician character of ian malcolm is not just a quirk uh for someone who's going to be different like he gets fairly deep into it in the book um and most of the characters die in awful ways and to me the book felt more like a a kind of adult thriller rather than a, a kind of like summer blockbuster um, mm. And I know now, you know, there's no way you can make that movie as a as like a thriller with gore in it because you'd end up with like one of those tawdry knockoff Carnosaur films. <laughs> but um, yeah. I think I think it's just for me as a kid who loved dinosaurs and violence that um, <laughs> I really, really kind of wanted to see that book adapted like that. And I do understand why they did it like that. And I kind of I get it. But like, you know, you, you got the kind of uh, PG-13 version. Rather than the uh, the the hard R, I want dinosaurs with a hard R. That's how I spell mm. it. <laughs> I think for me, part of it is the legacy of it, which I think is more something that's just kind of cropped up in recent years. But I think something that has always held it back for me, and this is probably not something I would have articulated at the time because I was a kid, but the sense that. It, it does feel more like a collection of set pieces than a coherent story. And the story makes sense, but there is that sense of like, I mean, the thing that everyone points to is the fact that the attack, the T-Rex attack on the, the Jeeps, you know, like there's that big continuity error where the dinosaur kind of breaks through the pen and then it's on the road and then it knocks the Jeep off. And then when the Jeep is hanging over there, there's a fall of like 200 feet. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but the T-Rex was just standing there. (laughs) Yeah. How has this happened? And like, I don't, I don't care that much about continuity in movies. I'm, I'm more invested in the idea of like, okay, does the emotion work? Then it's fine. I'll, I'll give you the, the, the the occasional lapse in logic or whatever if emotionally it feels true but it definitely feels like 
that it's a movie where spectacle and set piece is prized over does this make 100% sense or is this kind does this this logically follow that and so it does feel like they came up with a bunch of cool set pieces and then kind of strung them along and then the bits in between kind of tie them all together and that is that means that it's very fun it's a very fun watch and it's very certainly like as a kid seeing it on a big screen it was very overwhelming but then if you try and like follow it as a story it's a lot easier to kind of say uh, this this kind of feels like very threadbare stuff between like the raptors in the kitchen which is you know kind of one of the most indelible scenes of tension of any big blockbuster of the 90s or the you know the the look of awe on sam neill and laura dern's face when they see the are they brontosauruses yeah. Well, it's very interesting you say Brontosaurus because the Brontosaurus <laughs> actually bad lost its classification as a dinosaur when right, they realised yeah. that they'd already pre-identified pre, uh, it as the Apatosaurus. Okay. Um, it's actually Brachiosaurus, you're thinking of. Ah, yes, yeah. that is what I was thinking of. Yeah. Jesus when they Christ see the... dead, come on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, when they see the Brachiosaurus and you know they, they, they look up and they're kind of amazed and John Williams' theme is playing up sometimes on a, a recorder very badly. Mm. Um, still probably the greatest video in the entire history of the internet. <laughs> it is great. Um, you know, that is, that is, that's indelible. That's, that's fantastic. But there is still that sense that, you know, and, and like, it is also tied into the fact they don't kill John Hammond, who I believe dies in the book. He does. Be- and is a lot less of a cuddly granddad. Yeah, he, like, he's more a kind of like uh, shameless capitalist, mm. I think, um, who um, yeah meets his match in the way that Peter Stormare's character does in the Lost World sequel. That's how John Hammond dies in the book. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think that there are they, they make changes, like you say, to make it more kind of like family friendly by making like like he's a cuddly granddad. He's played by Richard Attenborough. You know, obviously, you know, he can't be that bad. So the ending of the movie is not what you would expect from a Frankenstein story, a story of God, of man messling with things which he shouldn't, you know, in, in a kind of a Westworld sense, because obviously Jurassic World is essentially just a reskinned Westworld. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of like, oh, well, that didn't work out. <laughs> but I'm still rich, so I'm fine. <laughs> you know, it doesn't quite have the, 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 the meatiness of its themes, you know, are, are very kind of defanged. So it does kind of go across as a very enjoyable but ultimately kind of like shallow experience in a way that i think to to talk about jaws you know the other great one of the other great blockbusters that that spielberg made you know that's a movie where its pleasures and its themes are pretty closely intertwined so while it's also a hugely fun thriller it's you know it's pretty meaty and you can really dig into it whereas i don't really feel as if that's quite the same with Jurassic Park because the ways in which they change it from uh, my understanding of the book is that they remove a lot of the the intellectual heft of it. Mm, that is uh, 100% true and violence. Yes. So they make it uh, more and less dumb at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd just like to point out that like, whilst you may have gathered from this conversation, I, I really do like dinosaurs. Um, mm-hmm. My favourite dinosaur now it was the Styracosaurus. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier. Yes, you um, did. my uh, my favourite dinosaur now is the Baryonyx, which is okay. um, a uh, kind of uh, apex predator from um, actually from the Jurassic 
period, not the Cretaceous, like the T-Rex. Um, mm. And it was like a, a kind of uh, uh, lived in southern England, uh, as, it, as it is now, uh, had a kind of long flat snout. Uh, ate a lot of fish, had a big claw, uh, used to use to kind of catch fish. And uh, it's in the new Jurassic World movie, which has really ah. upset me because they'll fucking ruin it. Um, uh, I, like, I like the fact that it's called Baryonics and it's from the south of England because that does sound like someone who would be from Essex. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. That's, that was his, <laughs> probably his uh, freestyle MC name, Baryonics. <laughs> yeah. We end this week's episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and that we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend to the listeners this week? Um, well, with the release of The Last Jedi on physical media... Um, I obviously bought it because, you know, Star Wars. And on the disc is a very excellent making of, which actually was strong enough um, to not just be a fluff piece on a, on a, on a DVD, but we've actually screened at um, South by Southwest. It's called The Director and the Jedi. Uh, and it's a very um, kind of personal look at Ryan Johnson's quest to get this film made very candid in in places and is also quite revealing and it kind of confirms a lot of what was uh, rumoured during the production that Mark Hamill perhaps wasn't the happiest at some of the decisions that were made about the character of Luke Skywalker which we've seen borne out in frenzied internet forums uh, in dark corners of the internet um, ever since but um, it's actually a very very cool look at a movie and what I really got from it was the movie uh, made by someone who's never made a movie that big before and mm-hmm. watching someone kind of trying to do his job whilst it also follows Ram Bergman, who's a producer and, and I think Ryan Johnson's long-term producer, um, mm. try to wrestle the production, uh, the scale of which <laughs> none of them have ever really handled before um, and just to try and keep this kind of juggernaut behemoth moving. Um, and there's a great bit in it where, like, Ryan Johnson actually sign, sign off on the budget. And you're like, shit, they actually have budgets for these things. <laughs> like, you don't just think they'll just chuck money in, like, you know, after it's like, oh, my God, someone somewhere has to agree that this amount of money and no more will be spent on this movie. Because if more gets spent, someone's getting fired. Um, wow. But it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a really, really kind of candid look at the production of that film. And like, I watched the movie as well um, straight afterwards. And, like, you know, that grows with every time I see it. Um, um, after the initial confusion and disappointment and, you know, weird realisation that I've fallen into that trap of being an asshole about Star Wars, <laughs> um, it is, uh, yeah, it's growing every time. And The Director of the Jedi is a thoroughly excellent, you know, hour and 15 minutes or whatever it is. Good kind of, um, a good kind of, like, supplement to uh, to the main feature. Great. I'm really looking forward to that. I also picked up The Last Jedi on Blu-ray this week, but I haven't quite had a chance to to break open but i've been really looking forward to seeing it because yeah uh, i'm a sucker for behind the scenes stuff and anything that really digs into the creative process is always going to like really appeal to me mm. uh, something that is in no way about the creative process is my recommendation this week which is a sketch from the most recent episode of saturday night live which aired last night john mulaney was the host John Mulaney is uh, one of the best stand-ups working today. He's uh, uh, he, he wrote on Saturday Night Live for, for many years, and in his capacity as host, he kind of brought back some sketches that he had written in the past, but which never made it onto the show and finally gave them an airing, one of which was, I think, one of the funniest sketches that Saturday Night Live have ever aired, certainly in the, the years that I've been watching the show. A sketch which takes place in a diner, 
Pete Davidson, the one of the, the cast members, decides that he's going to order lobster at this small diner. And then everyone acts aghast at this because why would you order seafood at kind of a clearly very low rent rundown diner? Uh, and then it takes a turn for the absurd when it turns out that the lobster is Keenan Thompson in a lobster suit because he's been there for so long he's just grown and become sentient. And then everyone starts singing a song from Les Mis. <laughs> Uh, it is absolutely absurd. It's one of the strangest things I've ever seen. I'm kind of amazed that it was like the third sketch of the night. It was, looked, felt like something that should have aired at 10 to 1 in the weirdo slot. And my favourite moment of it is that as soon as they wheel Keenan out in his big lobster suit, it cuts back to Pete, Pete Davidson, who's clearly meant to be doing a kind of like a stony face reaction shot. And he is doubled over with laughter because he can't <laughs> believe how ridiculous this whole thing is. Uh, and it is a one, it's just a wonderfully weird sketch. And like the best sketches, it keeps getting bigger and stranger and weirder the longer it goes on. And unlike a lot of SNL sketches, it has a pretty decent punchline because that's kind of the main problem with SNL sketches is if you're writing them in the week, sometimes you can't think of the best way to end it. So John Mulaney, having had eight years to mull over this idea, clearly benefits it because I think it is absolutely wonderful. I think if you just search for SNL lobster sketch, you'll probably find it on YouTube. Mm, yeah, yeah. I look forward to that one. I'm a big fan of John Mulaney. Um, and yeah, I did read somewhere that like that was the best sketch of the night and it was an idea that he had years and years ago that he never realised. <laughs> Maybe at the time they were like, no, this is too weird, mate. Yeah, there's another one on there called Switcheroo, which uh, I won't ruin because it's it's very it's very hard to explain what that sketch is about, uh, but it's very, it's very, very weird and very funny. And again, another one where he said, yeah, I wrote this years ago and they said no, so now I'm hosting, I'm going to force them to do it, <laughs> which... Uh, is a good use of your power as uh, someone who's now big enough to host the show that used to shoot down your ideas. Mm. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Play FM, all the usual places, write us a review and rate us. It is the best way for us to, to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.